Thanks for downloading the McKay interview. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, the recently retired commander of the United States Army Europe, is my guest today. Nowadays, he is the holder of the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, known as CEPA. We talk about the retreat from Afghanistan, the consequences for NATO of 100,000 Russian troops on the border of Ukraine. We address China and the Pacific, as well as the Middle East. Indeed, a wide-ranging discussion with a military man who knows. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone. It's been a while since we last looked at defence, the military, strategy, and the balance of power in today's geopolitical world. Well, those are my topics today, and I'm privileged to have as my conversation partner someone with vast experience at the sharp end, militarily speaking. My guest is Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, U.S. Army, retired, holder of the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, and he's based in Frankfurt. Formerly, he was the commander of the United States Army in Europe, based in Wiesbaden, Germany, retiring in 2017. He graduated from West Point in 1980 and was commissioned in the infantry. The Army has been his life. He was active as commander of the 1st Brigade Combat Team, Bastogne of the 101st Airborne Division in Operation Iraqi Freedom, that was in 2003 to 2004. And other operational assignments included Chief of Operations for Multinational Corps Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom a little bit later in 2005, Director of Operations, Regional Command South in Kandahar, Afghanistan, 2009 to 10. But he also served in Korea, was Chief of Staff of the 18th Airborne Corps, Director of the Pakistan-Afghanistan Coordination Cell on the Joint Staff, and Commander NATO Allied Land Command in Izmir in Turkey. Dear listeners, we're truly in the company of the right person to answer some of the big questions raised by today's geopolitical affairs, especially from a strategic and military perspective. General Hodges, welcome to Switzerland, welcome to Geneva, and welcome to the McKay interview. Michael, thank you for the privilege. It's really good, really good to have you in front of the microphone. General Hodges, you're the most senior American military officer that I've had on my show, but do you mind if we use the informality of first names during our conversation? I would prefer that. Thank you. Thanks, sir. You have just given a fascinating address to members and guests of the British-Swiss Chamber of Commerce, and we are still in the comfortable Warwick, Geneva, to record this interview. And by the way, listeners, we're recording this on the 15th of December. I mention that because events sometimes can change quite quickly. Four months to the day, Ben, after the Taliban swept into Kabul, and in the wake of the U.S. Allied forces' withdrawal from Afghanistan, and as you know, some call it a humiliating defeat, how would you characterize what happened? And in the light of how reliable is the United States as the leader, militarily speaking, of the free world? Well, like uh, so many people who served in Afghanistan, uh, military as well as diplomats and uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, huge disappointment to see it turn out like it did. Uh, so a mix of sad, uh, angry, <clears throat> But um, also, I have to say that the, uh, the decision to leave was the right decision. I just hated how it, how it got to that point and, and how it turned out. And um, 
course, you um, you make an important point with your question that this didn't. This is not something that happens in isolation. That there are implications, not just for the uh, poor people of Afghanistan, um, but also how the rest of the world views the United States as a reliable ally um, or as a potential foe. Um, I, I'm sure that was not lost on the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party or in the Kremlin how this all ended. Just as a supplementary to that, though, Ben, I mean, I know from some of the very senior army people I've had in front of me before, from the British Army, that planning is extremely important, particularly when you have the lives of men and women in your care. And again, of course, people like me only have what we saw on television to go by. Um, but it seemed as if it was just a shambles. Was, in fact, that the case, or is that too sensitive a thing for me to touch on the microphone? Well, I mean, the, the key for all of us is that we uh, learn from this terrible outcome, but not just the outcome, the, the entire experience. How did we get there? Uh, what happened along the way and, and how it ended? And, uh, you know, what you said at the beginning reminds me of Eisenhower's um, statement that, Plans are nothing, but planning is everything. And, and of course, with planning, uh, assumptions are probably the most important part. What are the assumptions on which your plan is based? And then, of course, what's the desired outcome uh, that you hope to achieve through that plan? And I, and I think in both cases, we made some terrible assumptions that turned out to be very wrong um, over the course of the 20 years. And the desired outcome also uh, changed a few times without our political leaders facing our public and explaining this is why we're changing the desired outcome and by the way it's going to cost you a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, so you, you can't lay the blame for Afghanistan at the feet of any one president. Um, uh, each of the four U.S. administrations uh, owns uh, responsibility for this. But I have to say that of the most of the major mistakes that were made, I personally kind of had my hand on it too. I, you know, the assumptions about Pakistan uh, as a reliable ally, or at least that we thought was helping us, obviously they were not. Pakistan had no interest uh, in a strong, stable Afghanistan that might be uh, somehow linked to India. And, and so they did everything they could to make sure, uh, to include giving safe haven, not just to Osama bin Laden, but also to thousands of Taliban. Uh, I thought, that um, I believe that narrative that somehow Pakistan was 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 helping us, and clearly I was wrong. Uh, and the other um, assumption that we made was that Afghan security forces would be able to uh, to do better. Actually, I I saw in action lots of very good, professional, competent Afghan soldiers and officers. The problem is that we. Uh, designed an Afghan security force that looked a whole lot like the U.S. Army, the British Army, the German Bundeswehr. Uh, and that means, and that model works great as long as you have unlimited firepower, endless logistics, exquisite intelligence, and, and thousands of contractors. When you take all those things away, then this model collapses. And so uh, we made bad assumptions there, and uh, I, I think that's why we we were surprised by this uh, rapid collapse here this summer. Okay. Ben, I have the luxury of 
just asking the questions, you have to give me the answers. But the front cover story of The Economist newspaper this week is what will America fight for? How would you answer the newspaper's question? Well, of course, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, I, th I think that our, my president, on the day he took office, laid out the importance of allies and affirmed America's commitment to NATO and to our European allies, uh, not only because of our obligation, but also because of our need. Uh, the United States does not have the capacity to uh, deal with all the possible requirements out there alone, whether we're talking about military or economically. So uh, I think the United States, I'm, in fact, I'm convinced the United States is going to fight for our allies and protecting those relationships. Uh, I also believe that the United States, under this administration, is going to, uh, we're going to rediscover um, our responsibility as a, uh, uh, as setting a, a proper example of what a liberal democratic nation should be. We're a long, long way from that right now. Unfortunately, the last several years have really damaged um, our, how people perceive us. Uh, January 6th being the most obvious, visible example of that, but um, so this, much This of was the, um, the riot. Yeah, the, like, insurrection, the, uh, the insurrection on the Capitol building in correct. Washington, D.C. I mean, it was horrifying not only for me, but also my friends in Germany that have gone to school in the U.S., have sent their kids to school there, have business or hol holiday. And even though the favorite sport in Germany is criticizing the U.S., they all still have high expectations of the U.S. That's been damaged. And, and I think uh, we've got to fight uh, to, to fix that inside our own borders uh, before we can wag a finger at anybody else. Let's just look at... Um Europe for a while, <clears throat> or at least to Europe to the east and NATO. Could you assess the current situation of military risk in Europe? And I mean by that strengths versus weaknesses on both sides, NATO versus Russia. And as a corollary to that, what are, you, what are your views on a European army? So if, if war was just about math, then this would be, there would be no contest. I mean, the combined... Uh, populations, economies, and militaries of the 30 nations of NATO dwarfs, obviously, what the uh, Russian Federation could, could put out there. Uh, and in fact, uh, other than population, it dwarfs what the Chinese Communist Party could, could field or put uh, underway on the oceans. But the key is uh, combined. And, and when you have cracks in this, uh, in our alliance and in the relationship between the United States and the European Union, for example, when you don't get the unit, unified combined effect of all of these joined up economies and, and uh, diplomatic power, then the risk, I think, goes way up. And so protecting that cohesion uh, is the key to uh, protecting our allies and, and not having a conflict. Um, the, uh, the idea of a European army is something that I think is, is wasted energy it, because what does it mean? I mean, I think that the, the first step is that our European allies and partners need to determine what is the threat? What are you, what are you trying to protect against? What do you want your armed forces to do? What are you willing to pay taxes for so that you have air force, naval capabilities, land forces, 
space-based uh, platforms and so on. What's, what's the threat? And without a, a definition of the threat, then I think this talk about a European army is, is, is wasted energy. It's a little bit of political theater. I have met zero, literally zero, uniformed officers from any country in Europe that says we really need a European army. Um, I think this is a, a political thing. Now look, the United States, every president since I think Truman has said to our European allies, you guys have got to do more. You have, you have got to take on more. The United States can't bear the full load. Um, and so there is an expectation that, that Europeans develop more capability. Uh, but that has become entangled a little bit, I think, in discussions about European sovereignty, European autonomy or, autonomy or strategic autonomy, and then the, the idea of a European army being sort of the uh, carrying the banner of what this looks like. But if you're not willing to spend the money for transport aircraft or intelligence satellites, then you're, you're not actually serious. But you mentioned the word politics in that context, Ben. And so my next question runs on from that quite logically. In November 2019, the President of France, Emmanuel Macron, warned readers of The Economist, again that newspaper comes up again, that European countries could no longer rely on America to defend NATO allies and that, and I quote at least what The Economist wrote as the words of the French President, what we are currently experiencing is the brain death of NATO. That's quite strong stuff coming from the president of one of America's closest and longest allies. How did you understand and interpret those blunt remarks coming from the president? Uh, I think there's probably three aspects to this. Number one, um, of, of course, I, I disagree with President Macron's statement or assessment, but it was a useful statement. It, it got so much attention, it really kind of shook people up like, what? How, how can this be? I mean, what, what does the president of France mean when he, when he says that? So uh, that, that generated uh, a lot of not just discussion, but also a deliberate effort initiated by Secretary General Stoltenberg to uh, create this strategic reflection group and say, okay, well, what, what is wrong? What is the, uh, the most successful alliance in the history of the world? Is it still up to the task? The second aspect of this, uh, he said that in reaction to, some, to a decision that our president at the time, President Trump, did, um, which was a basically a unilateral decision affecting, that affected NATO directly and indirectly. And it, was, uh, it had to do with troops pulling out of Syria. But that, I think that also was um, kind of within the context of some other things that the president was saying, my president was saying, uh, questioning the uh, American commitment to Article 5 of the Washington Treaty which created NATO. And Article 5, of course, an armed attack on one shall be considered an armed attack on all. When President Trump, in, in response to a question by Tucker Carlson, would the United States go to war if Montenegro were invaded? And the President said, well, I don't know, those guys are crazy, you know. And I mean, never in my life did I ever imagine that the American President would say something like that. Was that, that the question actually put to him? Yes, absolutely. Really? My gosh, and uh, so that that um, caused a lot of concern inside the alliance, um, and and people did begin to question: Can we really depend on the United States? So that's the 
second part of this. And I, I remember uh, being asked by a German Bundeswehr officer at the, uh, staff, at the staff college there in Hamburg uh, about U.S. commitment and pivoting to the Pacific and all that. And I said, hey, hold on, look, don't pay attention to what the president tweets. Look at what's happening on the ground, because actually, under President Trump, the number of U.S. troops permanently assigned in Germany actually increased. We're going to come to that a little bit later on. But, and so when I said that, <laughs> he said, yes, sir, that's true, but you, what your president tweets and says does matter. He's the president of the United States. So, so that's the second kind of response to your, to your question about President Macron's uh, uh, statement. But the, the third part that I would, I would remind your listeners is that in our system of, uh, of government where you've got separation of powers, the Congress has very specific authorities and responsibilities when it comes to security. Yes, the president is commander-in-chief, but the Congress provides the budget. They control the they purse strings. They totally control yeah. the budget. They yeah. also have responsibilities and authorities about foreign policy as well as security policy and so on. And the Congress has continued to be very strong in its support for Europe and for American commitment to NATO. So um, I think that there is no danger of the United States actually undermining the alliance worse than what President Trump did. And so as long as Americans are committed to NATO um, and provide leadership, even if we're grumpy about it sometimes, I think our alliance is going to continue to uh, be vibrant and relevant. Thanks for that full answer. My guest today is Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, formerly Commander of the U.S. Army in Europe, and nowadays holder of the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. It's known as CEPA. Ben, as a very senior military officer, and now even though retired, still very close to strategic thinking, if not action, please explain to me and non-military people listening to us the relationship between the reduction of defense budgets in so many Western countries and the utility and projection of force? Well, I don't know if I agree with the premise of your question. Uh, most nations have actually uh, begun to increase defense spending over the last... It's quite recent, though, isn't uh, it? Well, since 2014, uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine, and we everybody woke back up again, um, and then really after the NATO summit in Warsaw in 2016, where there was a recognition that we had to do more than just usher allies, that we had to have real capability that deterred uh, the Kremlin from aggression. And, of course, you'll remember from the uh, summit in 2014 in Wales, where the, the commitment to 2% uh, of GDP for defense spending, everybody agreed to that. Now, this is not about whether 2% is a good metric. But the fact is, almost everybody is moving towards it. Uh, nearly half of the NATO members are at that or will be at that by 2024, which was the, the target date. What, what really matters for me in terms of defense spending is, number one, readiness. No matter how big or small your, your military is, is it ready to do its job? Is equipment modernized? Um, our formations and ships and aircraft fully manned with women and men that are trained and ready to do their job. Does it work? Does the stuff work? That's got to be the top priority for defense spending. Uh, the second priority for defense spending, of course, is uh, what are the capabilities that you need? And you, talked, you mentioned projecting power. 
we all, even together, have insufficient uh, transport aircraft and shipping necessary to project power, and even the ability to move uh, cross-country in Europe is a challenge. So mobility uh, is an area that needs significant investment, and this is where I think the European Union plays such a, a, a critical role. Okay, it's interesting to hear you say, because I often wonder when people like you, with all of your experience and insights, use a word like readiness, is whether you mean something which we, as you know, lay people, don't really understand. But you mean that when you press the button to do something, that something actually happens. Yeah, can they do their job? Yeah. I mean, think about it, your, your local fire department, the Freiwillige Feuerwehr, do the, do the trucks work or the hoses mm. organize? Do the crews know how to hook up and put out a fire? That's readiness. So the same thing for a, an infantry unit or a medical unit or a, a fighter squadron. It's not just the equipment. It's are people trained and ready to use it, and are they prepared to go when called? Okay. Let's turn to Asia, Ben. In Asia, how does the USA see the balance of power in the Pacific Indian Ocean? Well, of course, this is the uh, the greatest arena of competition um, in the world. Uh, I think that um, this kind of hangs over whether we're talking about Ukraine in the Black Sea or dealing with Iran or Africa or Middle East. The, the largest long-term, what the U.S. government calls our pacing threat, comes from the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that doesn't mean that a conflict is inevitable, Obviously, all of us, including the United States, uh, are looking at China as a market, as well as uh, providing things that we all need and use every single day. Um, when we fail to compete with the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's in uh, infrastructure development or uh, weaning ourselves off of dependence on them as the sole provider of certain things, and certainly that became very clear during the, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, um, then, we, then we have a problem. And I, th I think that the, uh, the language coming out of Beijing now is much harsher than it was even a couple of years ago. And they, they're watching how we deal with the Kremlin in the, in the Black Sea region. Uh, they see that we did not really respond after they smashed the protesters in Hong Kong. I mean, not even UK really uh, responded very vigorously. So I, I think... This, this is going to be an area of challenge. They use their very large fishing fleet as a paramilitary arm to occupy islands and, and to extend their claims to waters out in the South China Sea, for example. They smash up other nations' fishing vessels. But this is, this is a potentially a very dangerous situation. And experts like you will know the answer to this, and so I'm going to put the question to you, but also the armchair military experts asked the question, is the USA, first of all, treaty-bound to defend Taiwan? How would that be done? And what scenarios do you as military people examine when you look at that situation? So there is not a treaty obligating the United States to come to the defense of Taiwan if uh, mainland China were to attack. Uh, I think the US policy has been uh, strategic ambiguity uh, for the past many years so that mainland China would wonder, would hesitate. If you declare, no, we will not defend Taiwan, then 
we have, we have a problem. Uh, the risk goes up. The, uh, the best way to protect Taiwan, of course, is to continue uh, all of our diplomatic efforts with the Chinese Communist Party to find ways out of escalation, uh, but to work with our European allies to work with, and to work with the European Union, uh, which is where real diplomatic and economic power comes from. That's, uh, that's how I think we, we protect Taiwan and, and also protect, uh, ensure respect for international law in the Pacific is by working with our European allies in all the dip different diplomatic venues and in holding the Chinese accountable for compliance with international law on trade, on uh, intellectual property, uh, all of these uh, aspects in protecting our networks, uh, that's how we can best uh, protect. But if we don't do that, and if the uh, Chinese Communist Party leadership sees that we are not unified in our effort, then I think the risk of them taking bolder steps goes up. Ben, as we begin to draw to a close, uh, let's change geography again. Two days ago, the Israeli Prime Minister, Natali Bennett, touched down in the United Arab Emirates, as you know, in a historic visit marking the first time an Israeli leader publicly met the UAE's de facto ruler, the Abu Dhabi Crown Prince. What does your strategic vision of the Middle East tell you about where this new relationship is going and, and why why do you say what you say, what you're about to say? <laughs> Give me some reasons. Well, I think that uh, as Arab nations, Gulf nations, uh, figure out how to uh, have a normal relationship with Israel, I think that those are steps in the right direction. Um, the, the strategic interests that the United States has in the region probably are quite similar to what uh, European nations have there. Obviously, you'd like to see stability. Uh, you'd like to see uh, access, uh, con continued access to energy as long as we depend on uh, oil coming out of the region. Uh, but also, we worry about uh, terrorism, Islamic extremists uh, coming, coming out of the region. So there, there are a number of reasons why we would care about what's, what's going on there. Uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia are the two sort of uh, protagonists that are um, fighting proxy wars in, in different places around the region. And, and we have an interest in making sure that that does not grow into something worse as well. But to close, a big picture question, American foreign policy. How much has the ship of the State Department really moved direction since the end of the Vietnam War, if one takes the really long view? What is the USA's vision and strategic direction vis-a-vis -vis its place in the world and the challenge of the new rising power China? Well, I think right now we're paying the price for taking for granted that we were sitting on top for so long. I mean, when I say sitting on top, I'm talking about having almost unlimited uh, economic power, uh, military power, uh, access to go anywhere. And uh, I think we made the mistake of thinking that this was uh, going to be into in perpetuity, uh, that you didn't have to continue to work hard thinking about next generations coming along. Um, and, of course, we were humbled with how things have ended in Afghanistan and uh, the fact that 
China and Russia and Iran are all taking big steps and doing things, and they don't seem too terribly concerned how the U.S. might react. So uh, I think that uh, our foreign policy has got to be built on uh, strong alliances and relationships where people know that they can, where nations know they can count on the United States. We can't, we can't sort of surf in and out when it's convenient or it becomes interesting for a period of time. So long-term strategic thinking uh, needs to uh, return to to Washington. Um, but I, I think also we've got to address our own domestic situation. President Biden has said American foreign policy has got to be based on strong uh, democratic institutions in the United States so that once again we can be seen as an example of what uh, liberal democratic uh, nations and, and governments look like so that uh, then we can, well, yeah, we can be that example for others right now the, the power of our example is not what it used to be or should be. Okay, it's a very pragmatic note to end. Ben, thanks so much for giving me and our listeners such a thorough briefing on geopolitical affairs from your perspective. It's been truly enlightening. Have a safe trip back to Frankfurt. My guest today has been Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, formerly Commander-in-Chief of the US, U.S. Army in Europe and now holder of the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis, CEPA. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for listening. Please share the show with those around you. And if you have any questions or feedback, write to me at contact at I promise that I will reply to you.